0: Anjali, thank you for taking our time and for doing this for us. Uh, Really looking forward to today's session. I think we received more than 150 registrations for this one. So clearly, I think I speak for everyone here. Um, For those of you who aren't acquainted with Anjali, I'm going to try to do my best to list down her very illustrious career trajectory. She's the founder of Avana, a fund platform that invests in innovation-led to achieve impact at scale. An engineer by profession, Anjali was earlier a global partner with Spencer Stewart and co headed their Asia Boats Practice. Post which, she was a strategy consultant with McKinsey in New York and India for over 18 years. And along with being an active investor and mentor to many startups like Make My Trip, Nika, Lenskart, Urban Club, she also serves on the board of Siemens, Startup Power. Bata, delivery, and many, many more. We really meant it when we said we've got just the best for you. Thank you so much for doing this for us, Anjali.
1: Ragini, thank you for having me here. It's uh, always a pleasure to be with all of you and a bunch of great women. So I am aiming to learn as much as whatever dubious gyan
0: I can share today. We're, We're all yours. But, you know, actually, before we jump into, of course, the multiple questions that we have from our audience, uh, we're going to ask you three, four very, very quick questions just for them to get to know you a little bit better. And of course, set the tone for what's to come. Are you ready? Should I start? Absolutely. Go for it. What's the best business advice you've ever gotten?
1: Oh, hands down. um, Two pieces. And at different times in different ways but two consistent sort of themes one is do what you care about what are you passionate about and craft your solution versus following a playbook so craft your solution the other is have more confidence
0: very true extremely true cool one truth and one lie about entrepreneurship
1: one truth Gosh, it's harder than it you ever think it's going to be. Uh, but it's also a lot of fun, which is why we all do it. And uh, the lie is that success will come quickly and easily and miraculously you will turn into
0: a unicorn. Or a multi-unicorn. Or whatever, yes. <laughs> Truer words haven't been spoken. Cool, the biggest myth about venture capital, I'd love to hear this one. <laughs>
1: Hmm. About about raising venture capital or doing venture capital? Doing venture capital. (laughs) The biggest myth is that it is a buy-side occupation. It's completely sell-side. You are selling yourself. You are selling your fund. You are selling your money,
0: your support to entrepreneurs.
1: Trust me, entrepreneurs are the king of the hill and the queens of the hill, more
0: importantly, not the VCs. Yeah. Cool. Uh, My last one on this one, uh, a role closest to your heart in your career?
1: Closest to my heart has, I I would say is, and it continues in a different form, is when I chaired the board of FWWB, which is Women's World Banking in India, uh, one of the largest global network networks of autonomous microfinance institutions. So I started working with women's world banking when I was in New York way back in the mid nineties. When I moved to India with McKinsey, I continued to advise Seva and uh, so I advise Seva bank and so on. I joined the board and I think just the combination of the amount of work we had to do. So there was a lot of regulatory work the microfinance bill had got passed. We were running as a trust with a large portfolio. So that had to get converted into an NBFC. So the amount of work involved but also the kind of impact we created and just being very close to the ground and working with women micro-entrepreneurs and exactly. other microfinance. I think, very close.
0: Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. And thank you for being so Uh, What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to dive straight into the many questions we already have collated from our audience during registrations. But ladies, you can actually start dropping your questions on the chat box. And we'll try to mix these up and take them as we Cool. I'm going to quickly get the ball rolling with something that is on on mute. Thank you. Uh, Cool. Getting the ball rolling with something that I think is every first time founders step one. Um, And we do have a lot of first time founders here and budding founders. So as someone who actually has a dozen ideas for potential startups, how does one really deep dive into the what and how?
1: I would suggest taking a step back first with the why. Why am I doing this? Not why are other people doing it? So I'm gonna make this up, right? So let's say you are in a business that is creating enterprise SaaS solution, or you are doing the next version of eco-friendly personal care products. Very important to ask yourself, why are you doing this? Not why is it a good opportunity? there has to be more emotive passionate feeling around why am I doing it what am I going to get out of it is it just and it could be multiple things and there's no judging could be that I know I can make this successful I have the right skills I have the right knowledge I see a white space and I'm going to be hugely successful create lots of name and prestige and value that's okay that's legitimate or it could be I see a real need how do I get education to the bottom of the pyramid teach English or math and so on all legitimate but really push yourself to answer the why am I doing this? What do I want out of this personally? Um, And what is my right to win? Why do I want to play this? What is my right to win? And then if you find that you have a great desire to play this, but have limited right to win because you just don't have the skills or the resources, then you could either give up, which I would not recommend. If you feel strongly, why give up? Then build those skills. Build the team if you, you know, you can't develop skills overnight. So create the complementarity in your team and your co-founders. Find the resources around you. And resources are capital, um, people, knowledge. So build all of that around you. So when you have a dozen ideas, apply filters. Why do you want to do what you want to do?
0: Got it. Um, Actually, just a follow-up question on that, uh, since you spoke of teams, right? And someone has asked that, Team building is a permanent struggle, I think, as most of us here know it. So when you hire people uh, to learn and grow with you, they also often end up making mistakes early on, right? Uh, They do, however, have a great sense of attachment and gratitude to the firm. And of course, are likely to stay on longer. But when you hire more qualified staff, you get better results. But there is also a high risk of movement, strain on resources, etc. So, what's really the better hiring strategy um, for early or first time founders? And I know I struggle with this every day. So, all yeah. yours. <laughs> so,
1: listen, recruiting is a full time job. But you have to, so as a first, whether you're a first time or second time founder, frankly, as an entrepreneur, you are constantly recruiting. Yeah. So uh, the other myth, by the way, is that it is capital and product and so on. Your real, real competitive advantage is your people. Mm-hmm. So if you find the right people and what is the right people? It's horses for courses. different kinds of people required at different stages of an enterprise. Um, at the startup and an early stage, more important to have people who've got the right attitude, the right mindset, and are a very good chemistry fit with you as the entrepreneur, with you and your co-founders. Uh, all people who are coming in, see, the first 5, 10, 15, 20 people are really the ones who will make or break the organization. They will build culture, they will provide, uh, it goes well beyond skills. So, skills is one part of it, the will and the attitude is the more important part of it.
0: Got it. And so, if you had
1: to make a trade off between somebody who's very seasoned and has all the right skill set, but is uh, expensive and not very entrepreneurial, doesn't want to take the risk, the needs more than you can give. You are better off going with somebody who is younger, more energetic, and frankly has more runway to learn and grow.
0: And and they, you know, often I also feel end up staying very very long. And we saw this a lot at Zomato also. I think we were all twenty twenty one when we got hired, right? right? right. Stayed on for like six years, seven years, some eight nine years. So really getting that right uh, is, I think. Uh, Prachi, in fact, has a follow-up question to that. So Prachi, if you want to quickly unmute and uh, ask Anjali a question while we're on that thought.
2: Yes, I think uh, I have the same question. Um, you've already talked about the qualities. Uh, I also wanted to know, how would you convince people to join your startup? I mean, I'm, I'm working on my own right now. So what will be like my pitch or how to build it? And if you could also talk about like many more qualities of, uh, for example, like the first five people
1: you will hire. So your idea has to appeal to the person and you have to appeal to the person. People ultimately sign up because they are excited about an idea or an opportunity and they want to work with the person. As a startup, it's not like you're going to give them tons of sort of compensation or cash, right? So it's, they have to feel as passionate about the objective and the purpose as you do. And one of the other filters I would strongly recommend is you have to like the person. The first five, six, eight people, you're gonna spend so much time with them. You must like them. And we used to have this uh, transatlantic flight test that would you be willing to spend New York to London sitting on a flight next to them? So six hours that you have to spend next to a person talking to them and and not just sort of snoozing. Can you do that? And it doesn't mean you have to have lots of stuff in common or be similar, but there has to be enough wavelength match.
0: And the ability to have that conversation and sit through those six hours. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's very, very helpful. Um, I'm onto the next one. Um, So timing, Anjali, as they say, is of course everything. So when do you really know it's time to take that leap? I like this question already. <laughs> and that you're you know ready to hit the market with your product or with your idea. And till when do you really wait to understand if your product is a success or has a future? I think extremely relevant, especially in this world of product market fit. And I think we all hear that word so much. So would love to know your take.
1: So two schools of thought on this. There are those who say you must uh, spend time, do the research up front, do the the testing and the piloting before you really go to market because you really get only one bite at that apple. Uh, The other school of thought is uh, be nimble, be agile, experiment, fail fast. The answer is it depends on the kind of product you're working on. If it's a technology product, then uh, it is less resource ins- intensive and you should actually be quite nimble, agile, try various things, run pilots um, and see an iterative way of getting to product market fit. So you can start with a very strong hypothesis or an experience driven approach. So a lot of people come into um, entrepreneurship this, uh, the, their first enterprises after many, many years of experience. And they may already know what the product market fit is. They may have their first few customers lined up. So if you're in that boat, then absolutely, you should just go straight on because you know what the product market fit is already. On the other hand, let's say again, going back to a personal care product, then there is a little bit more fixed or sunk cost because you have to create the the formulation, the production, the manufacturing, and then the marketing branding to go to market. So it does require a little bit more upfront work before you hit uh, market.
0: Got it. Um, Vandana, do you want to ask
3: your extremely, extremely relevant question? Hi, Anjali, and hi, everyone at Leap. Um, so, Anjali, uh, I'm a founder, and I often find myself, uh, you know, very burdened and lonely in uh, my aspirations, in my day-to-day dealings. And I often wonder if it is time for me to rope in a co-partner, or should that be a senior associate i'm sort of always confused so uh, some words of wisdom on that would be really nice
1: um if you can find a partner do that right away okay entrepreneurship is lonely enough and if you are the the core founder you will have other co-founders of course but if you are the main founder you're going to be lonely enough as it is so having like-minded people with you as partners who are not who are capable of also taking standalone decisions and really being a good sounding board and a sparring partner for you. I cannot emphasize enough uh, the the joy and the value that a good set of co-founders or partners bring. And they don't all have to be peers. They can be near peers. Mm
4: -hmm. They
1: can also be mentors, but somebody who is as vested in the success of the enterprise and your success as you
3: are. Okay. And do they have to be, um, yeah, as you said, mentors, but are they part of your business then or are they just people who are sort of cheering for you and supporting you? No, more than cheerleaders. So you can have mentors
1: who are cheerleaders and and just mentors, but the point I'm making is having thought partners who are as engaged and as vested in the business as you are. Right. So if you're not able to find a like-minded co-founder an equity partner, so to speak, then see Mm -hmm. who else is there around you to provide you that support.
3: I've, you know, discussed this with a lot of people who I think could be potential partners, uh, mm. you know, in the business or in uh, in a lot of ventures that I'm thinking about. But I see uh, them as cheer, I see their attitude more as cheerleaders. And they sort of tell me that, no, you are the one who should do it alone and you have the skill and you have the vision. So nobody really sort of uh, wants to dive in. It could be the pandemic, you know, sort of, uh, uh making making uh the sentiment different today but uh yeah i don't know but i don't find it uh that means you haven't found a co-founder yet it's okay yeah, keep looking fine. yeah <laughs> okay. Okay. thank you
0: about that but you know i think very relevant question vandana I, I, I remember talking about this too i think even mukesh bansal in one of the last sessions that we held um and i think he, i think he was just very blessed about the fact that then they don't believe in your business right so yeah. that's true
3: yeah. yeah
1: or they might believe in the business but they are not willing to commit to being yeah. operationally involved yeah correct so yeah
3: yeah
0: another just a follow up question that comes in my mind uh, based is what vandana asked actually anjali is what's a good number uh, of co-founders, right? Uh, what's or what's the right number as per you? Because I know you've seen lots of startups. So is it two? I know it's definitely not one. So is it two? Is it three? Is three or is three a crowd? Or how does that work?
1: Anything is better than one, um, but if it's an amazing founder, then one is fine too. So it really does depend. I've seen anything from two to five co-founders. And uh, most times, and it really does depend on the team, but anything two to three founders, I think, is a good number. But take delivery, for example, they had five co founders to start with and a tremendous success.
0: Got it. And since you work with a lot of impact based founders, right, I think our next question is very, very well suited, which is uh, passion and purpose are said to be, of course, super important in entrepreneurship. And you call that just when we started. But once you start your journey and as you go along, of course, there are times when either or both of these get sidetracked because of challenges or, you know, just wanting to kind of scale up. So how do you really advise founders to stay focused to the core objectives, especially when everyone's hustling, disrupting, raising millions of dollars?
1: Oh, what a tough choice, no? (laughs) Uh, But I think it's... uh if that balance is not there, that disequilibrium is a very temporary situation. It is definitionally, in my view at least, definitionally it cannot last for too long. Something will break. The business, the team, you, something will break if it is out of kilter for too long. Um, And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, what does passion mean? Passion means you have an idea that you are, passionate about executing and making it successful. Uh, Purpose is why you're doing it. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your shareholders. You're doing it for society. So you may go through a temporary phase where in the process of scaling up a business, you might find that you have to put, quote unquote, purpose second. Uh, But it it actually will not stay out of uh, balance for far too long. It just will not exist that way. It breaks. It will all come back together. Go on. It's, the, it's like saying, should I focus on top line or should I focus on margin? You've got to focus on both. But for a period of time, you can say that because I want to drive top line growth, I will sacrifice my margin. Over a period of time, you have to get both. It means you will increase burn temporarily and raise more capital, perhaps, and dilute more. So all of those things will happen, but eventually it will all come back in balance. Think you are on mute
5: i think maybe ragini's internet conked off you can hear me clearly right Andrei? yes
1: we can hear you can hear oh, you now
5: perfect sorry i was on mute i did not realize um right so i'm gonna take the next question we discussed passion and purpose and that was very interesting uh, tenets there um we remember watching one of your interviews Um, last year, and we discussed this before we joined as well, where you mentioned how 2020 has brought about a humanitarian change and impact Mm -hmm. in the world of work. So taking from there, how do you think the tenets and models of entrepreneurship evolve and change in the coming future? In other words, actually, like, how does one stay future ready?
1: Well, one of the unexpected outcomes of the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns and so on has been this acceleration of digitization. And what used to be very niche work from home. And we are here sitting in Leap with, with lots of women. And so I will apply the gender lens to this work from home question. The work from home seemed to be an insurmountable challenge for organizations to quote unquote, allow women to work from home. Now, overnight, everybody was working from home. And some of the biases and myths about how can you possibly be productive and are people really working when they're home and so on, all of that has got busted. Yeah. So our expectation was that, hey, it will make it much easier for women to work. What happened, on the other hand, is that there is lots of sort of now already, even in a short period of time, data that is showing that it's become harder for women to work from home because everybody's working from home. So they are competing yeah. for resources, whether it is Wi-Fi resource or a place to work. Um, there is all the, all the other domestic burdens or domestic responsibilities, women are now sharing, shouldering an even greater proportion of that. What does this mean for entrepreneurship? It means that there are models. Um, the, one is the future of work has, in my view, shifted irreversibly. So we will go to some normal. The new normal will not be the old normal. Uh, the combination of real sort of physical and digital is here to stay. So from a future of work point of view, it creates new ways of building teams, new ways of working together in collaboration. So some of the barriers around entrepreneurship of needing to have an office, needing to have people all in one place, I think some of those things are going away. As, as, so as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you can actually build distributed teams, virtual teams, and create digital distributed products. The second thing that has happened is acceleration of digital channels um, across industries. And channel is not just a distribution of um, say um, FMCG or a personal care or a food product or a financial product, but also education and healthcare. So a lot of things that you we all assumed would require a physical footprint now no longer require a physical footprint. So future readiness has even uh, an even greater focus on technology and d- digitally enabling your enterprise. Your company should be a digital company, even if it is not a digital product. So the ability to capture data about your users and customers, use that smartly, apply. I think AI today is a given. You
4: yeah, just need absolutely. to have a large
1: enough data set to run analytics and get good insight out of it. So it's no longer a massive differentiator, but what you do with it is the diff- differentiator. So it's a new set of skills that you must incorporate into your business plan, into your team as you build out your team. I think those are some of the changes.
5: No, absolutely, and definitely agree on the AI bit. Um, okay, we have uh, Anam's question next um, in which will be in tandem to something that we had on our mind as well. Anam, do you wanna unmute yourself and ask your question?
6: Sure. Hi, hi everyone. Hi Anjali. Um, My question is something that's been playing on my mind for a while because I'm in the middle of planning something as an extension to what I already do and looking at starting a new brand. And one of the questions that a lot of people are asking me is, why are you doing this on your own or are you doing this on your own do you not want somebody to back you up financially um and you know kind of uh, invest into your brand and i am like this slightly old school person who doesn't completely even understand how that system works in all honesty um but i feel like i don't know i feel like if i start small and then figure or i start small and then when i kind of hopefully do get bigger. At least I know it's my company and I have complete creative control over that. But there's this looming fear of, oh my God, has the time passed for like small pop mom setups, boutique setups, like is is that era gone? Can we not make it big anymore without a couple of billion dollars being funded in kind of a thing. So where does like, what is your opinion on that? Is there time for that? Has that era passed?
1: I mean, no right or wrong answer. It's what do you want? Do you want to have a small, beautiful business which you control and have creative control of? Because the minute you take somebody else's money and you get more people involved, you will not have sole control. There will be stakeholders to carry along and build alignment. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. You might, along with money, along with capital, good investors also come with great ideas and support. They can help you build teams. They can help you test your product. They can, I don't know what business you're planning, but they can get you access to business development and revenue acceleration and so on. So there are benefits to get raising external capital. It need not be billions of dollars or even millions of dollars. Uh, it can be a few crores of rupees and but enough to help you gain scale faster if that's what you want. But, but if you choose that, I do not want to dilute. I don't want to have other people involved. I don't want to have other capital. Then you will possibly remain smaller for a longer period of time. But have a lot more control.
6: But there's scope. Like, like, would you say there's scope to, I mean, hopefully at some point go bigger. I'm not comparing with like the million and billion fundings, but just scope to grow. You know what I mean? Like the simple joy of seeing your brand grow. It depends what you're, what business you are in. Okay,
0: fair. And yeah.
1: yeah,
6: yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for answering my question.
0: Cool, I am back and disclaimer, do not trust Goa, Wi-Fi or electricity, but uh, just, you know, speaking of raising Anjali, how does one really approach investors and, you know, work with them in the initial stages, since I know a lot of them are in in, in that uh, that, uh, timeline, at least, right? So how do you negotiate investment for equity and still retain control of your company, which is also, I think, was.
1: Anam's question. So Until you dilute massively, you will retain control of your company for a fairly long period of time. Uh, If it's a money hungry business and there are business models that are much more capital intensive, in which case you will need to raise more money and dilute more and so on. But you will also raise money at successively higher valuations. Um, Again, these are choices. There are no absolute truths here. Most founders, by the time they get to series D, series E and so on, the founder or the founder team is probably south of 20% equity ownership in the business. Um, but by that time, the company might be worth close to a billion or somewhere around that, right? So it, it's it's absolutely okay to do that. Um, better to caution against diluting a lot too early. So typically we don't like to see in series A uh, where the, by the time they get to series A, we want to see entrepreneurs still having between 50 to 70% ownership in the company. Series B, we'd like to see them at least at least 50%. And in subsequent rounds, it is uh, quite normal at least, becoming quite more and more normal for the founding team to get additional ESOP before the next round is raised. And incoming investors might actually ask uh, that that be done. And that founding team continues to have skin in the game. Yeah. No. So right. how do you approach investors? You network like crazy, and uh, women tend to have less sort of smaller networks, etc. So hence, uh, using resources like Leap is very useful.
3: Cool.
0: Going to take Priya's question next. Uh, Priya, do you want to quickly unmute your question and
4: ask? Yes. Hi, Anjali. Good evening, everyone. Am I audible? Just checking. Yeah, just slightly okay. mellow, but we'll make do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks. So, uh, you know, I'm working currently, but uh, always have this little hitch that really want to do something of my own. Uh, but the more I'm seeing about the products available today in the market or companies and services which are getting more acceptance end up being things that, you know, could, which could never come out of a consumer research or which will not actually be things that what people want, or ever realize that they wanted. So, uh, you know, how how do you start thinking creatively? uh, Because typically, you know, you've always from that frame of thought that you should definitely solve a customer problem. But sometimes they may not be a problem, but there can be a latent need. How do you identify those needs? And is there a way that we could structure creative thinking?
7: So would you
1: so clarify that for me a little bit?
4: OK, so I can take the example of uh, Cred. OK, so mm-hmm. who would have thought, you know, that I wanted an application like Cred? Or if someone would have done a customer research, would something like Cred ever come out of it? Uh, but, you know, it's it's doing really well and people are signing up for it left, right, crazy. Same about, say, Dream 11. Uh, you know, people always saw so many things and people always played and sports was always outdoor activity, especially football and cricket, but they made indoors work so well. So uh, how do you structure creative thinking and, you know, out of the box thinking? Is there, I don't know, there is a magic formula to it, but can we structure it in any way? Can we formalize it in any way?
1: You could do classes and so on, but if there were a magic
4: formula, somebody would be bottling it
1: and selling it, right? But there is a reason why Harsh is who he is at, you know, Dream 11 or Kunal is who he is at Mm -hmm. Cred. Um, So some of the best startup ideas come not from huge market research, but really from sharp insight Mm -hmm. or just sort of amazing creative thinking. Um, Not sure if you can actually teach it, train it, run classes on it. Uh, There are tools to promote creative thinking in teams. And if you're in an organization that is large and you think that you need to kind of promote innovative thinking in your teams, then there are those tools that can be used. Okay. Uh, but that is, that is the secret sauce. Right. It's the imagine Velcro question. Hmm. Uh, before Velcro was invest, invented, people used to, you, you know, they used tape and strings and so on to as fasteners right. or zippers at most. I mean, who would have even imagined a zipper? But they imagine Velcro to take loops and hooks and see how they hook and create Velcro. You could not have run any consumer research that said, hey, you need a product like Velcro because you can't imagine Velcro. Right,
4: right.
1: Great
4: times are definitely at least... Um, see
1: what Look up 3M. 3M actually uses a lot of these tools internally. Okay. 3M is one of those companies. Uh, 3M and Dow have, I think, of the largest uh, number of patents in the world and, and DuPont.
4: Okay, great.
0: So much but don't rely
1: on that for great
0: of entrepreneurial course, of course. ideas. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> great. So we'll, we'll take Ekam's uh, question next. Ekam, do you want to quickly unmute yourself and ask the question?
8: Hi, Anjali. It's great to be here today. Um, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've spoken so far. It's really insightful. Uh, so my question is... Um, I am a first time founder and we're doing something in uh, the space of beauty and fashion where we talk about how to grow in this business. And we do content under video, audio, and of course we do articles. Uh, but we're moving towards a sort of a marketplace for you know these niche courses that um, could be catering to a very large uh, market segment in India. Um, so it's been about seven months, but I, I just want to know when do you know if your idea is firstly um, do you need investment can you bootstrap and when is the right time to actually think of you know reaching out to investors, like how, how do you go about thinking about these things you know what is the thought process. Mm -hmm.
1: So like I mentioned earlier as well, there is no one right answer, there is a general venture playbook which suggests that you start a business, it's got a great idea, you demonstrate that it is scalable, um, either through analysis or observation or insight and so on. Right. And start doing some basic product market fit. If you're a terrific team and have ter- terrific sort of background and you're lucky enough to have some early backers who will just say, here is a check, for build. Then right. you could actually start raising money right away. And these days we are seeing it is not unheard of at all to have a absolute sort of seed stage, no product in the market company also getting valued at 3 million or 5 million. But it doesn't have to be that way. The reason I'm giving this example is not to suggest you should try and do that. You could, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you think you can bootstrap, then by all means, try and bootstrap. Uh, I'll give you an example. ZeroDha has never raised external money. right? And consequently, they have built a business which is very robust. They have had creative control in a different way. Uh, throughout the build of the business and uh, have created something very unique. So it, you don't necessarily have to raise money if you can bootstrap and if your business is not the sort that will burn and will need more money. On the other hand, if you're trying to scale, do the rapid scaling journey of say an Udaan or, or a network effect business, for a network effect business model, you do need to have more capital to be able to scale, at, uh, scale more
8: rapidly. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you.
9: Shikha, do you want to ask your question next? Hi Anjali, hi everyone. Thanks Ragini. Um, actually, I was the one who had asked about the future ready bit. So I think I'm a bit hung up on that <laughs> right now. But um, as a quick follow up to that, you know, this whole word sustainability, I just wanted to know your thoughts on it and, and ask you if you've seen different companies from different industries really take sustainable practices you know, and take it forward in a genuine way. Because if I really feel this is something that's going to become need to do, but I don't think most businesses have clarity on how they should take this forward. Just wanted to know maybe a framework or any, any practices you have seen you know, from a different industries. Yeah.
1: No, lots of practices, a lot of good things to emulate. Um, so sustainability means, if you look at the UN SDG and sustainability, it means something very specific, but sustainability can actually have multiple parameters there is environment there is society there is uh, for me gender and inclusion you cannot have a sustainable society if you do not have when 50% of your population right women are 50% of the world and they're still considered diverse how can half the world be diverse you know, it's just no, no it's thing. an oxymoron So sustainability means different things. There is carbon footprint, there's environment, there's uh, inclusivity, if you will, whether it's gender or digital inclusivity or financial inclusivity. So uh, it depends what sustainability angle you want to drive. Um, Enterprises more and more are looking at ESG as a framework, not as a nice to have, but a need to have. So it's no longer just a nice to have. There are businesses that embraced ESG long ago. So I'm closely associated with the Tata Group and the Tata Group's stated purpose is to serve the communities. And they will make profit because, and by the way, profit is good. Profit creates the surplus, the financial surplus that you can invest in R&D and job creation and sustainability and growth. And growth creates, again, it's a virtuous cycle, right? So uh, it need not be either profit or sustainability. It can and should be both. Unilever went down this journey, I think almost a decade ago when Paul Polman came in and um, and my God, how inspiring, right? And Mm -hmm. he came and spoke to us and I can tell you there was not a single person in a room of fairly hard-boiled people who wasn't ready to sign up and just follow Paul in whatever he was doing. So it's very inspiring saying it's not about creating the most valuable FMCG company in the world, but also the most responsible. So both can go together. There is research that shows that companies that follow good ESG practices, and call it what you will, but let's use ESG as a proxy, uh, over a decade, so over 10 years, provide better uh, total shareholder return. And then when you kind of start thinking about it analytically, it absolutely makes sense. Good ESG means they have better governance, they are taking a long-term view, they are investing more, and consequently, over a longer period of time, they will have better shareholder return performance. Whereas if you're doing quarter to quarter, then you are really, you may not be investing as much in the things that matter. Um, And finally, I want to say that uh, less so in the startup world, but it is starting to happen. But I can tell you in the public markets, the the largest global investors. So BlackRock, for example, Larry Fink is, his statements are very, very well known. Uh, BlackRock has one of the largest corporate stewardship uh, teams Across any global institutional investor. And BlackRock, of course, is the largest global institutional investor. The Norwegian Pension Fund has stated that they will only make ESG compliant investments. We are starting to see this come into the startup world also. And I kind of welcome that move. I think it's startups can start right. There's no legacy you have to undo. So I'm passionate, so I can go on about sustainability. So I'm going to stop.
9: No, no, I mean, I don't want to take too much of everyone's time, but I think maybe what is a good way is to have a good framework, you're saying, or let's say um, a milestone-driven approach for the next five years, seven years, because, you know, especially, I don't want to say I'm a sustainable brand till at least I have invested or done enough to, because that's where I think my worry comes, you know. We are all using this term, but we don't really, how much, I mean, because it's e-carbon footprint, like you said, it's inclusivity, it's people, you know, there's so much around it. How do you espouse that genuinely? I think that's where- So authenticity is important. Yeah. And you
1: can't be all things to all people. So if you're building a business and you want to do it in a sustainable way, define what parameters of sustainability you are going to focus on. I'll give you an example. Avana, uh, we are not a quote unquote ESG platform, but we are because we have chosen to track, measure and report ESG metrics. We are not required to, but we do it anyways, because If we are espousing the cause of responsible investing and responsible business, so profit with purpose, we must do it ourselves. And it's not super expensive to do it. It does mean that I have to commit resources and a person who will track it. We have to ask these questions of all our portfolio companies and our investments. and, And I have not faced any resistance at all. So we are ESG. We are a gender smart platform. And I have seriously never faced resistance from any of our entrepreneurs or companies around even questions around gender sure. it's just that no one's asked them before
9: thank you very much that was very yeah. very helpful and insightful so
1: thank pick you. what you want to focus on
9: yeah makes sense yeah thank you
0: thank you so Avni I know Anjali answered the first part of your question but do you want to ask your next one
7: hello uh, hi Anjali thanks for providing us with uh, insightful thoughts um uh again uh, the first question was answered but i'm still um looking for the i am still not at i did not get it maybe uh the thing is i my question was that how do you know the timing is right like uh, currently if i want to start uh, mm-hmm. do you do um a survey or that that is never enough. So you small start, basically, you try it out. But Mm -hmm. small starting is also, um, I don't understand how to start small.
1: Well, then start big. (laughs) No, but I'm not being flippant. I, I mean it. It depends, again, what is the business you want to build? There are some businesses that lend themselves to starting small and growing. There are others that do require rapid scaling. Yeah, depending on the nature of your business uh, you must start with a plan though right okay but your plan should include if it's a network effect business then you have to think about how will I get to a million users by year two or year three and what will it take to get there correct
7: okay but whatever planning also you do how do you know so my second question is that only how do you um how do you set your goals marketing goals so if i my idea is to reach out to for example leap as an example when it started and now that it has gone to so many a number of participants it has the growth is amazing but um, did they make a plan to reach out to so many people ask Raghini.
0: <laughs> yeah Raghini, did you make a plan we did uh, we started by talking to 500 women, uh, as large a number as that sounds. So there was some research that went into it. Um, we started with 30. I used to meet every single person in person at Cafe Tonino. Uh, I remember Tanvi Savara was on the line when I met one of her founding members, Tanya Jones, who happened to have told her about it, etc. So yes, we started uh, with, say, 30. But uh, I think we always wanted to, and if you read our annual report, right, we always want to get to say 15,000 by the end of 2021 and maybe more, right? So,
7: so yeah, I hope so, that. So this number that you come up with, like 15,000, is it too too high or too low? I mean, how do you decide that? It's always too low in my
0: head. <laughs> and, and that's how I think I should think also. But uh, I think we just we just kind of do that math on our thing basically runway, profit, all of that, right? Uh, the team has to grow. We're, we're 15 people. We were two people. Now we're 15 people. I'm sure by the end of the year, we should hopefully be 50, 60 people, right? So I think keeping all of that in mind, what will really sustain us, uh, what will really make a difference. Uh, and right. Anjali works so much with impact-based things and impact-based startups, right? And for especially mm-hmm. a product like ours, it's very easy to kind of get labeled as uh csr and and stuff mm-hmm. like that but what really keeps the ship running is real hardcore money which all of y'all thankfully do pay because you see that value right so exactly
7: so that- yeah so how would you decide i mean uh, if, if if for example you wouldn't have got your first 50 60 members if it, it took maybe one month but it would have taken a, a let's just say six months would you still stay with it or how long would you try for it the timing is very important that's what i mean to say how do you decide okay.
1: so if in six months you find you are not scaling yeah. then it means you must go back and look at your business model and your product market fit if in six months you are finding it hard to scale it means you do not have a product market fit right uh, ragini and i'm speaking for you yeah i think leap found the scaling happened fairly organically. They worked very, very hard, by the way. It's not easy. Also, I'm not suggesting tweaked, it was easy.
0: we tweaked. Uh, we didn't start yeah. with, we will get 15,000 people. We were supposed to be an offline platform. Masterclasses did not exist. COVID taught us that. Um, coaching should be one-on-one did not exist. Um, our founding members taught us that, right? So I think all of this happened after tweaking a lot uh what the 30 members initially signed up for is very different from the shape and form leap is in today i did not think of 15000 members if if that's what you're asking me may 2020 or in fact march 2020 when covid happened we did not think that leap would be an online platform we would have an app we would have 15000 members we were going city by city we were delhi then bombay and offline meetings and all of that but I think uh, if anything 2020 taught us was to not just be resilient, but also know when to pivot. So, Great.
7: yeah. Awesome, congratulations. <laughs> okay, that's it.
0: Anjali, of course, if you have anything to add. but No, nothing
1: to
7: add. I think that's a case study by itself, right?
1: That's mm-hmm. the pay
7: For Leap, is, is, is it a funded company? We got our angel round, yes. Okay. Uh, when, like
0: Anjali mentioned, I think we were an idea Um, And and that's when we raised a small round, uh, have not used any penny. uh, But
7: yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Great. (laughs) Cool. I'm going to take Nikita's question next. Uh, Nikita, do you want to? Hi, everyone. Hi,
10: Anjali. Such a pleasure to uh, listen to you. Thank you so much. I'm going to slightly uh, tweak the nature of the conversation. I'm going to go back to the subject of talent. Uh, That's something that um, is close to my heart as well. So, you know, as um, uh, retaining talent is as important as attracting talent, right? And uh, whether you're founders or whether you're professional CEOs in organizations, uh, there's always uh, a nagging worry at the back of your mind of losing top talent because, uh, you know, top talent these days has become so visible. In your experience, uh, and I'm sure it's become a boardroom discussion as well. Uh, is there any art and science that one has found on retaining talent? And what I'm, what I'm looking for is something more intuitive from your experience, um, that perhaps you could share with all of us. Thank you.
1: Oh, uh, 70% of a CEO's job, particularly in large organizations and even in small ones is is HR if you will yes it's finding retaining motivating your people um, but of, of course you will have attrition some of it is desirable attrition there are some people who you actually want to have leave but it's the undesirable attrition the ones that you really want to have stay Um, someone comes to you and says they're leaving and if they're leaving to go to another startup um, and so on you know I I've got folks who have worked with me who are now running various businesses, um, have become entrepreneurs or CEOs and so on. So when they left me, there was no point in trying to hold them back, right? You have to let them go mm. within peace, with mm. good wishes and all the support you can give them. So if you have good people leaving you, uh, two things, let them go as ambassadors for you and your firm. Right. Have happy, amicable, friendly departures if they're good people. Uh, obviously if you have fired somebody it's not going to be that way or if you are mentally rejoicing saying yes I'm so glad they're leaving so I don't have to fire them then it's different but the other thing to do very importantly also is reflect why they are leaving and is there something in yourself as a leader and a manager or something in the business itself which is you know it's feedback it's the form of you may not do a formal exit interview but Understanding why people are leaving is very important. If if they're moving towards something, that's very positive. It's good. Wish them well. Give them support. If they're moving away from you or your company, then that's something you have to work on fixing.
10: That's very helpful. And a very small follow-up question there. Is there a way to predict longevity of an individual while taking that hiring decision?
1: There are lots of tools that have been worked upon, there's research that's happening and what are predictors for longevity. I haven't found the most sort of scientific, uh, most okay. accurate predictor of anything yet. And I think it's very hard to do that in startups, particularly okay. in the early stage. Okay, thank you so much.
0: Neta Jata, do you want to ask your question next? Hello. Hi, we can
2: hi. hear you. Hi, hi, Anjali, how are you? Hope. Everything's good in your end. I um, actually have um, a slightly different question. Even I'm a first time entrepreneur. And you know, like everyone says that you, you know, you need to have that sort of a mentor or a sounding board. Um, in terms of networking, um, you know, I've been able to reach out to some good mentors. But I think uh, the same thing with talent, right? How
1: do you reach
0: Uh, you know, your, Netujama, we lost you a little bit. Um, so if you can just, hello. Yeah.
2: So, sorry. Uh, my net is a bit unstable. I just wanted to understand, right. That even when you get in touch with a mentor, which is say, you know, through LinkedIn and you have, you're trying to build sort of a one-on-one relationship, you're not in an incubator or some sort of a program. How do you bring structure to it? Um, because you know, um, You try and do weekly calls or things like that. But for me, somehow it hasn't worked out, right? And I've gotten in touch with some really, uh, I think, sort of uh, well-known people within the circle, but um, I just don't know. Maybe uh, I'm not doing it the right way, but really how do you milk, you know, their sort of experience and what should you expect out of them? What level of hand-holding or what level of hand-holding shouldn't be there?
1: That's a great question. Um, with mentors and advisors and so on, it's so important to set expectations up front. And uh, that said, it, there is no, again, there's no science to it per se. A lot of it depends on what's your chemistry with them and how committed they want to be. But there are some good questions you can ask. You know, what are the various things they're involved in? Will they be able to make time for you? Um, and be honest with them and yourself as to what is it that you're expecting from them? Are you actually expecting them to counsel you and help you grow as a person and as a leader and so on? Are you, do you want specific business input? Do you want specific domain or technical expertise to come in? Do you want help in fundraising, um, access to business development? So define some of that with them. Okay. And then your one hour a week will be, I suspect, a little bit more fruitful.
2: So, you know, I've tried doing that um, and we've really tried to have, say, like, a, a, you know, maybe for marketing, you'll have sort of a go-to marketing plan. Like we've tried to mm-hmm. sort of structure like, say, a roadmap. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe if I'm not doing a good job of keeping the mentor interested or, you know, just uh, like sort of, um, you know, how to make them because it might happen that you decide something. Um, you know, in a meeting and then you plan to do it and then it's not working out. So I have sometimes... Do they have skin
1: in the game with you? Sorry? Have they invested in your business? Do they have equity in your business?
2: No, nothing right now. So it's it's just been very sort of, you know, um, one-on-one. One -one. One was like, you know, uh, wanted to invest and have some sort of equity. But um, when I spoke to another mentor who I was also speaking to, they said that, you know, the way this mentors probably speaking to you and the way they want e- equity doesn't work that way so you rather steer away and you know wait for the right person to come along
1: so it works both ways uh, people may care some of your mentors may care enough about your success that they are willing to help in any case mm-hmm. and sometimes um, having them invest in your business when someone's written a check into the company they're a little bit more western right they're more aligned
8: okay
2: okay thank you cool monica do you and i know
0: we're slightly short on time uh, but we have three more questions if you're okay with that anjali we'd like to take sure
1: that. so let's take um, those three questions
0: monica
11: thank you, you. yes question? Yeah. thank you ragini hi anjali good uh, been a very interesting session till now um so my question comes from i am a co-founder in uh, one organization which is just uh, Cusp of launching, so to say, and um, uh, and I've often seen this. I mean, when you are building an organization, you're always struggling with marketing versus operation in some way, right? One side mm-hmm. you want to um, kind of get your, especially if it's a product based stuff, you want to get your operations and product fully right, and somewhere you let go of the marketing, and then you have a full full fledged product ready, but to have no, you don't really have a marketing plan as well as you would, could have done. Or the other way you kind of go all out in the marketing and then let your product... So how, how to kind of get that balance in a small nimble organization when you're just uh, starting out and you have very limited people and as startups are, I mean, often, right?
1: You know, at some level you just have to get going and say, okay, it may not work perfectly and... Uh, you will do those small pilots and fail fast and get make some losses perhaps ideally not you know you'd be lucky enough to get the product market fit the right time the right right way the first time but it may not be that way so it, mm-hmm. it i don't think it is possible to really get everything perfect your product your marketing and all of it aligned mm-hmm. Sometimes no, especially when product will happen first, when, marketing will happen first. Correct,
11: correct, and especially when you uh, especially when your market, uh, product is probably slightly high valued and it's creating, it's it's not a product which is you're also creating a segment in some sense. So I mean, then the marketing it's just um, so how do you? No,
1: create so a Monica, if you're doing value? category creation, if you're doing category correct, creation, yeah, in some way, then yeah. you actually have you have to be willing and have the resources. So you hmm. must have the resources, the capital, the people and the patience, and hmm. all of you must be aligned. That category creation will take longer. Okay. It will take you a year, two years, three years sometimes to actually okay. do the education required to create that category. Hmm. Hmm. But okay. then when the inflection happens, then you hit your J curve because hmm. you've created the category, you've made the investment in educating the consumer and you've got a great product. When it takes hmm. off,
11: you will scale very rapidly just to wait out that one, two, three years and keep your stuff at it going and that's what it is essentially.
1: Right, but but make sure you are testing along the way. Yeah, okay. Hmm. That there is a product market fit. Hmm. Hmm. So waiting for the J curve does not mean that you're not testing for product market fit. Hmm. Hmm. You're scaling. It's not like Hmm. you're not scaling. You're scaling but not as rapidly because you are investing a little bit more in educating the category. Okay. Okay. Thank you.
0: We have another question from a very, very interesting and young founder. Kamakshi, do you wanna ask your question? I don't know if she's still connected. Uh, I'm, I'm in fact gonna just ask that question. And uh, her question is how do you increase sales in an era where everyone is focusing on digital marketing, which we of course understand is important, but laser focus on sales how did that happen
10: hi uh, i'm actually present uh
4: okay great
0: we couldn't hear you so yeah you can ask yeah. your question <laughs>
4: All right. Thank you so much for this incredible session.
7: And what I actually meant by increasing sales is like uh, drawing from the last question, we're actually creating a new category. And till now, we do not have a brand in intimate parent, you could say. But uh, what we're struggling with the most is increasing sales. And we are doing digital marketing. We're doing all the, you know, uh, product market fit elements that we should have been doing but still we are unable to scale so if there's any suggestions that you know um, you might have you can definitely add to this so that we can uh, iterate and try again for the next three months or so
1: so there could be a variety of reasons and i think it will take a longer conversation to uh, figure out what exactly is it uh, it could be your product It could be pricing, it could be channel and placement. Um, There are various things that could be creating barriers to scaling. D2C people think is all about digital marketing, but D2C is about creating a digital first brand where the, the, the engagement with the brand is digital first. It does not take away that you might, and you may not just might, but you probably will have physical channels for distribution and sales. So while the exposure, the discovery, the engagement might be digitally on transactions could still be offline through traditional channels. So it's very much an omni-channel type of business.
0: All right, thank you. Kamakshi, Anam says she loves your page. <laughs> on that note, we're gonna take our last question. So
1: without... Sorry, I'm gonna give an example to Kamakshi. It's, uh, look at Lenscard. Lenscard started digital first. And then I think in the year three or four is when they started rolling out retail and offline. And 50% of the revenue now is offline. Nika started digital first, but then also rolled out offline retail uh, and private label. And it's not as large as Lenskart is today. But you see Lenskart, the, the product is such that it requires assistance and people want to try it on. So while they may discover it online, they may buy it offline. They may discover it offline and then buy it online. Bata, on the other hand, started as an offline brand. It is still a predominantly offline brand, but dramatically increasing its online sales because that's the only channel that's available during lockdown. So it will be a combination. When you think about how do you solve for sales, uh, do think about whether it's a sales question or a channel question. All right,
0: thank you.
12: Cool, we're down to the last one. Uh, Subitha, do you want to ask your question? Um, hi Anjali, uh, I'm Subidha. Um, I'm a part of um, uh, the engineering, I come from an engineering background and I am looking to start, um, uh, you know, manufacturing setup soon for, um, uh, you know, components. So my question to you is, and I'm a, you know, a relatively new mom. I have a two-year-old son. So I'm trying to understand, you know, how do you navigate between the two? Because both of them are going to be your babies, your uh, venture as well as your baby. So how do you manage that? So I'm going to be difficult and say, I don't understand the
1: question. Have you never (laughs) multitasked before? (laughs) (laughs) But you would do your, (laughs) both your babies. You see, babies need parents so co-parent your son and co-parent your company having co-founders and a spouse right is quite helpful for raising both kinds of babies but right. at the same time invest in building just like you would invest in building your support infrastructure in your business so raising capital having co-founders having a team invest in building the support infrastructure for your domestic Mm -hmm. enterprise, which is your child. So having good help, which we can Mm -hmm. in our country, um, creating the backup. So you are not the sole and primary service provider. Mm -hmm. Just think about it as an enterprise where you are far more invested and far (laughs) more passionate and far more purposeful than you could ever be with your business. But you do
12: have to create true, the true. team at home
1: like you create the team at work.
12: Right. That's that's an excellent uh, piece of advice. I will look at it from a completely different perspective now.
1: And, and parenting, like doing a startup, is a team sport. There are no mm-hmm. prizes for solo heroism. And I raised my child single-handedly. By the way, I raised two children who uh, you know, the juries are still, still out, but, you know, I'm a fairly, sometimes an objective and sometimes a very biased mother. I think they are wonderful.
12: <laughs> and I wasn't there all the time. I'm sure. so. Right, right. It's probably going to take a change in, you know, shift in mindset as well. No, no, shift in our own mindset. It's not society. Yeah i mean my our own mindset you know because our you're
3: mindset.
12: so uh, in tune to being our uh, the you know the primary caretaker to move from that to being uh, a little hands off quite the task but thank you anjali thank you so much for your
7: advice <laughs>
0: Great. Uh, Thank you, Anjali. Again, I think from all of us, I think this was very, very honest, insightful, all the objectives. Um, It's, of course, been more than a pleasure to have you with us here today. And members, thank you so much for being so amazing, patient. We'll see you on the next one.